0: This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast this year in March.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Shannon Hale is the Utah-based New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series and Rapunzel's Revenge, as well as Austin Land, which was made into a movie. Her latest, Amethyst, is on our UPR community book list. Shannon Hale joins us today to talk about her books, gender and reading, and other topics. As I mentioned, Shannon Hale, New York Times bestselling author of over 30 children's and young adult books, including graphic novel memoirs, Real Friends, Best Friends, and Friends Forever, and multiple award winners, The Goose Girl, Book of a Thousand Days, Newbery Honor recipient, Princess Academy. She also writes books for adults, such as Austin Land, and co-writes books with her husband, Dean Hale, uh, such as the Eisner-nominated graphic novel, Rapunzel's Revenge, Best, uh, selling illustrated chapter book series Princess in Black. They live with their four children near Salt Lake City. Shannon Hale, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Tom.
1: Well, um, I want to uh, talk about a little bit of your background uh, for those, you know, a lot of people be familiar with you, some not in our audience here. Um, so you say in your biography that uh, your mother says you were a storyteller from birth. Uh, at age 10, started to write fantasy novels, but uh, I guess uh, in, in, never managed to, to finish those. Tell us about that. At 10, 10 years old, started to write.
0: I did. I was always making up stories in my head. I would, I was like in my friend group, I was the chief game developer, <laughs> per se. I would make up the games that we would play because I always had story ideas. It never crossed my mind that I could be a writer. I didn't know any writers um, You know, growing up in the 80s. Back then, publishers didn't send authors uh, for children on book tours or into schools, so I thought they were extinct, like dinosaurs. You know, mm. it was when I was in fourth grade. I had a teacher at Wasatch Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah, who started us writing stories and poems, and I thought, oh, I could do this. All these stories in my head. I could write them down and maybe they could end up in a library someday and I was just hooked. Um, it took it took 19 years of writing before I was published, mm-hmm. but I instantly loved it.
1: So was it always fantasy? Was that what you were writing?
0: Mostly fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I loved to read back then. I love everything now. <laughs> I am a person, mm-hmm. I guess, that gets bored easily. Um, a lot of writers tend to specialize in, in one particular genre. I've written just about every genre, for every age group, um, I love to challenge myself. So my first few books, like The Goose Girl and Princess Academy, uh, were fantasy novels, young adult fantasy. Um, I've done now memoir, graphic novels, murder mysteries, romantic comedies, a superhero, science fiction. I've done it all.
1: So, uh, you say in your bio you were embarrassed to have such an impossible dream. Did you, I, I guess, uh, I don't know, hard hard for you to envision that you'd become a writer?
0: Yeah, it really was. Well, first, you know, I just didn't know anybody. It didn't seem like a realistic dream. You know, when you grow up with, you know, a, some you want to be a teacher, you, you actually meet teachers. This felt like pie in the sky and additionally you know when I was little and cute and I would say oh I want to be a writer when I grow up adults would say oh you're so cute you can do anything you know and but I noticed that started to change as I got older when I was in middle school when I was a teenager and I would say that you know the adult reaction was Ooh, you know that's hard you know be realistic and the reaction from the my peers was yeah like everybody wants to do that obviously you know you can't just do that so I was embarrassed. I, I didn't really feel like um, I had the talent or the means or there was I wasn't special enough. I felt like you had to be really special to have uh, to make it as something like a writer. And so I stopped telling people because I, I, I didn't think anyone believed I could do it. And I wasn't sure that I could. Mm. Um, I didn't really come out of the writer's closet until I went to the, to the University of Utah and uh, got an English degree. And I told everybody I was going to be a teacher. Um, but eventually I decided I there really was nothing else that was going to make me happy. So once I decided to get an, an MFA in creative writing, that's when I kinda couldn't hide it anymore, and I had to admit this was my
1: dream. What kept you going with this?
0: I, I, I'm a writer, you know, whether I can make it as a career or not. I I have to. Um, the stories are in my brain. I love to read. I love stories of all kinds, you know, great movies and television as well as as books and i'm just compelled like i don't feel right when i'm not writing so whether i got published and was able to you know support myself with my writing wasn't the factor whether or not i was a writer um and indeed it it took a long time i years of rejections of. And years of, you know, writing really, really bad stuff as I tried to develop my craft. Um, the thing about writing is it's a it's a funny, it's a sneaky kind of art. Because, you know, most anybody who is, you know, literate can write something. And so it feels like it shouldn't be that hard. Like, I can go to the opera and I know I cannot sing like that. I can watch a ballet and know I cannot do that leap. I can watch, or you know, a basketball player play and I cannot do that. Um, but it's deceptive, it seems deceptively easy. So it's easy to get discouraged um, when in the beginning as a writer, be- because um, it- we don't allow ourselves often to put in all the years it takes to develop that skill, just like it would take a- years to develop a- the skill of playing an instrument, of using words to express yourself, of of figuring out narrative flow, um, and um, s- just story, and... How to use words as tools that takes time. And I think not always the people who you know quote unquote make it are necessarily always the you know chosen or they're the most um worthy. It's just you have to be stubborn and persevere until not only until you train your brain to be good enough to do this, um but until you also get there's always luck element, the right story at the right time with the right publisher
1: i'll refer people to your website shannonhale.com shannonhale.com uh, there you have you know, some great stuff uh, including uh under uh under your books under the goose girl which is your your breakthrough uh, you have a section called rejections and you ha- you give it give advice to writers you know stick with it you say stick with it war uh, writers you're warriors right stick with it uh, but maybe don't try to publish your first draft or maybe not even your first book tell me about that
0: I don't know anyone, and I know a lot of writers now who've published their first thing. That uh, that's just, you know, a myth. That I think sometimes people think I just have to come up with the right story, and if I just nail it the first time, then I've made it. Um, but again, it's there. There's that skill involved, and writing writing a, a novel is such a huge accomplishment. And anybody that does that should feel so proud of themselves because it is a tough thing to do. But also um, to give ourselves time to keep learning and developing. I'm so, you know, when I was a teenager in writing, I wished I could have been published then. I felt ready. I look back now on what I wrote, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so glad (laughs) that somehow I didn't get published because I would be so embarrassed. Uh, Yet to give themselves time. I hear from a lot of kids who are writers and they want to know how to get published. And my advice is always just, you know, Publishing is actually not the fun part. Writing is the fun part. Just keep writing for fun, because once you get into publishing, there's business stuff. There's actually less time to write. There's a lot of rejection. There's everybody's got an opinion about you. It it can be really um, soul crushing that process. So focus for as long as you can just on the craft.
1: So with the Goose Girl, you 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 finally you went through dozens of agents. Finally found an agent who would uh, you know advocate for you. And then and then it's on to publishers and lots of rejections. You you uh, on your website here you have three rejection letters. Why, why did you do that? Or I think it's maybe four. It said it's several rejection yeah.
0: letters. Yeah, yeah. I, I had more. I had more rejections than what I put up there. But I just put up four of, or three or four or whatever of those letters because I just think they're they're funny. Um, the the goose girl. You know these rejection letters. They they some of them. One of them says that. The, they found my writing stiff, cliched, and self-conscious. And I will apparently never forget those three adjectives <laughs> because it is so hard. And another one says, um, this book will not engage young readers. It will not maintain the interest of young readers. And they were pretty thorough rejections. And um, that book did eventually find a publisher. and went on to get published Um it, the year it came out it was voted by teens across the U.S. as one of their top ten favorite books. It was voted onto the NPR's list of best hundred books of all time for teenagers. Eighteen years later, it's still in print with over 30 printings. It's been translated into, I don't know, 20-plus languages. So those people who rejected it, they were they were right to reject it for them. It. It wasn't the right book for them and that's fine not every book is right for everybody but they were wrong that it wasn't right for anyone and so i mostly put those letters up just to show hey when people reject you you know it doesn't mean that there's no worth that you have no worth that no one is going to love it or love you you have to you have to keep trying it's kind of like falling in love isn't it like it feels like a miraculous thing when two people who just fit right find each other and feel the same way about each other that can take a lot of time and a lot of searching.
1: What was your thought when when it became a hit? Did you say okay, I've made it? Uh you said 19 years to to reach that point?
0: Yes. Uh well, getting published was amazing. I I mean, beyond like birth of my children, like the best really event of my life. It was so incredibly validating. But I I had a very slow start. I um the Goose Girl, my first book, was not a bestseller. It didn't win any major awards. Um, I think the first printing of it was 10,000 copies, you know, not like these million copy printings that people get. Um, I was published by a very small press um, when I was the second author that they acquired in the United States ever, and only three people worked at the publishing house in the U.S. when, I, when they acquired me so i didn't have a book tour i didn't have a lot of publicity so it was a very quiet start um and that was fine that was that was good i no, i never felt like i've made it now i don't think you ever feel that way in this business i mean even john steinbeck said something like um publishing makes horse racing look like a stable industry Mm. it you, you always feel like this is going to go away at any moment. Uh, it's a very fickle industry. Um, but my third book um, won a Newbery Honor, and that really changed things for me. I still didn't make enough money that we could live. I took, uh, I think, 15 books. I had, I think I'd published 15 books before our family could live on the income from the books as our sole income. Um, so it was many years of just working and writing and and keep pushing forward.
1: By the way, you write, uh, it's a funny scene, you write uh, when you receive the Newbery, informed of that. Seems like all these awards, uh, you know, MacArthur Genius, uh, the Nobel, they, they wake you out of bed. It's like 5 in the morning, I guess, uh. Which is the yeah. case for for you, barely coherent, yeah. and and the whole committee's on the on the speaker phone with you. But uh, it must have been a, a just a watershed moment for you.
0: It was, yeah. It was. I was only my third book out, you know. And um, at the time, I was the only Utah author to ever receive a Newbery Honor in its you know eighty year history. So it was. It felt very. It was hugely significant. The Newbery Honor is given by a committee of um, librarians who who devote their lives to loving and appreciating children's literature, and they take it extremely seriously. And it's a huge honor for everybody on the committee to be chosen to the committee. And they spend all year reading all books that are are um, qualified and having many in length, uh, in depth discussions about it until finally choosing the few that they are want to award. Um, to be recognized by people like that. Um, it's incredibly validating. There's so much self-doubt, I think, you know, in the arts especially, because there's no absolutes, right? There's no, there's no way to really tell if what you do matters, ultimately. It's strange. I mean, I grew up doing theater, and when you're on stage, you could feel if the audience was with you. You could feel their energy. If it's comedy, you can hear them laugh. You can hear the applause. You get that immediate feedback. With writing, you write and you send it off, and you just don't know. You don't know. Is anybody reading it? Does anyone care? Did all that time and those hours and hours, hundreds of hours I spent, you know, going over every word and agonizing over every decision, doesn't matter to anybody? um, Because that's ultimately what art's about, is sharing with other people and that connection. And so writing is a very strange, a lonely business in that way. And, you know, you try not to focus on awards or things like that, because they are capricious, absolutely. But it also is very validating to know somebody noticed. Somebody Hmm. noticed what you were trying to do, and they cared.
1: I noticed uh, you, and you just mentioned it there, you've done improv. Um, Yes. And you mentioned the immediate feedback. How is that? I, I... if I imagined myself doing that, I would imagine terror of, of bombing. I guess there's some of that, right? But I, how was that?
0: <laughs> I, that's what I imagine now, too, Tom. I don't know how I did it. I was young and fearless, I guess. I yeah, I did. I did a lot of community theater growing up. I um, someone said to me recently because I was talking about how my lack of confidence when I was young, and and she said, "What? But you did theater. I always thought you were so confident." And that's such a funny thing because I think theater people are they, they don't we don't didn't do it because we were confident we because we're so desperate for approval and love maybe. <laughs> but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I enjoyed rehearsals more than anything, and just being part of this team working together. And improv, like anything else, it's it's skill based. It took a lot of rehearsals and a lot of practice to learn how to do it well. And then um, I did it with a group of friends for a while, and it was great fun. And after I hadn't done it for a year or so, I thought, oh, I could never do that again. <laughs> it is tough. But it has um, the skills in that were really useful for writing, that kind of sense of when you end up somewhere where you weren't expecting, see where it takes you. Because it, can, it could take you somewhere where you didn't know you, know. you walk onto stage, and you think that you're a cowboy riding a horse, And someone says, that's a nice dinosaur you got there. And suddenly you're like, oh, I'm not in the Old West where I thought, where am I now? And you just go with it to see what you have to let go of that control in some ways. And writing, um, it's like a mix of control and letting go. I think there's this balance. It's like holding um, a handful of marbles. If you squeeze too tight, they all fall out. If you hold too loosely, they all fall out. You have to find this sort of balance of of, you know, instructing the story where to go, where it makes sense, but also allowing for the, the, the serendipity and for the discovered
1: moments. If you've uh, just joined us, we're talking with Shannon Hale, uh, Utah-based New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series, Rapunzel's Revenge, Austin Land, other books. The latest is Amethyst, uh, which is on our UPR book list. And uh, we'll uh, take a break now, a uh, brief break. We'll come back and have more with Shannon Hale following this thanks for listening to access utah I'm tom williams we're talking with shannon hale she and her family live in uh, near salt lake city and uh, she's new york times best-selling author of the princess academy series rapunzel's revenge austin land other books and uh, she's the winner of the uh, newberry award and uh, other uh, major awards and her latest uh, book, Amethyst, is on our UPR community book list. Pleasure to talk to Shannon Hale today. So Shannon Hale, before we uh, go and talk about some of your other books, I wanted to uh, spend just a little more time on The, on the Goose Girl. I understand from uh, reading some things on your website, by the way, shannonhale.com. Uh, you were introduced to this tale and many others, uh, from you and your sisters reading your mom's, as you call it, Mammoth Book of Fairy Tales. Uh, so, yeah. Sounds great. So uh, you, you gravitated toward uh, the Goose Girl. Why? Why is that? Do you think
0: it was so strange and mysterious to me? It it wasn't a satisfying tale. Um, I f- I feel like Cinderella is kind of like wrapped up with a bow and done. And you you kind of understand what's going on there, and there it is. But the Goose Girl always left me asking questions. It's about a story about a princess who travels to another kingdom where she has an arranged marriage with a prince but on the journey her accompanying lady in waiting betrays her and forces her to pretend to be the maid and the lady in waiting pretends to be the princess and um in my story i you know i i i blew it up much much larger than it was but it uh, it left me with questions like why why did the princess just go along with this um, there's a talking horse that you know never talks until it's dead, and like what's what's going on there? Um, at one point, the uh, princess who's in disguise as a goose girl can control the wind to blow away the hat of a boy who's bothering her. Like where did this come from? All of a sudden, wait, what? what, what how could she control the wind? What's happening? And then, you know, how does the prince feel about all this, you know? And there's this, it just left me with so many questions that I think that's where stories began, is with questions. If you kind of understand everything, there's not much for the the mind to puzzle out, and it takes a lot of puzzling out to to write a novel. So it just gave me a lot of space and room to explore, and I was so intrigued by it that my brain wanted to work on it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, a great opportunity, yeah, to uh, because the, the original tale is sort of unfinished itself, right, or very brief. Yeah.
0: Yes, very brief, yeah. So I turned to, yeah, it was, it was three, you know, these Grimm Brothers tales are about three pages long, and it becomes a 380-page novel, so you, there's so much room to develop characters, to, to figure out what the magic system is, to turn it into a fantasy, um, figure out the relationships between the characters, and, and figure out what you want to say, you know, what really matters. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to talk about the Princess Academy. Of course, you won the Newbery Award for this. Um, this uh, you you write about how this began. Tell us how does this begin?
0: It, you know, so, so many stories don't have. So many of the books they don't have good origin stories, and this was one, one. I just I heard the phrase "tutor to the princesses," um, and I thought, oh, that would be interesting—a uh, story about uh, someone who tutors princesses—and I'm like a teacher of princesses, or. What if there's a school for princesses, and then then I thought, well, what if there is? What well, if they're not princesses? What if they go to a school to become a princess, or what if one of them is going to be chosen to be a princess? Why would they be chosen? And and you know, coming up with story ideas, it's always you're always complicating them. How do you, how are they? How do they become more interesting? And for me, the thought was, what if they didn't want to be chosen? And then I started asking myself, why wouldn't they want to be chosen? You start creating and building. Community, there's this you know community who lives at the top of the mountains, mining a, a quarry stone, and they're very poor and they're very separated from the rest of the kingdom. But um, there's a tradition in their country where the priests divine where in the kingdom the bride of the prince will be found, and unexpectedly this time they choose Mount Escal, this remote little mountain village. And so in a year's time, the prince is going to come up the mountain and have a ball and meet all the girls of this town and choose one to be their bride. So they set up an academy because these girls have never even learned to read, have never attended school, and they learn the things they need to know in case they're chosen. But they are very suspicious of these lowlanders. They don't think anyone's really going to be chosen. They really just want to go back to their families. Um, And that's where the story begins. And then, you know, just keep moving from there. Really, for me, it's it's a story about education and the power of education to to change a person and a place.
1: There's uh, probably something of you in all your books, right? Do you uh, do you? I guess do you probably don't set out consciously to to, to that. do that. Do you notice little snippets here and there from maybe your childhood or what you're going through as an adult, or from your kids' lives in any of your books?
0: absolutely 100%. I I mean if I wrote the Prin- princess academy today instead of 15 years ago it would be a different book because I'm a different person. Um there're always, you know, snapshots of what I'm thinking about what's important to me at the time. I'm increasingly now writing more and more graphic novels than novels. A part of that is because it's what my kids love and they're we've our house is full of them and I'm reading them all the time. And I see how much delight and joy it brings them, and so I'm I'm drawn to that. Miri um, from Princess Academy is more like me as a person than any of the other characters I've written. I generally avoid putting too much of myself on purpose into a character because it then it starts to be it, it becomes hard to really uh, see them clearly. You know, there's a lack, there's you're too close to them. Um, but but she is, you know. Reacts and acts more like I would than anyone else. But I did also write three books that are absolutely me because I wrote three graphic novel memoirs, starting with real friends about, you know, growing up in Salt Lake and with an anxiety disorder, struggles with depression, struggles with friendship. So that's all me.
1: Oh, I want to talk about that. So, uh, Real Friends, and in fact, the character's name is Shannon. I think, right? The main yes, <laughs> main character. It is me. It's, it's, yeah, it's an not a Autobiography. Yeah. yeah. Auto- yes. autobiography. yeah. Um, the I mean the a lot of problems. You mentioned your anxiety and other things. Uh, the central part of this is friendships, right? Uh, and yeah. which, which can be great strength, and also you know, a real source of stress as well, especially at that age.
0: So stressful, and watching my own kids grow up. Um, That's why I wanted to write these stories is because I I had so much stress about friendship growing up, and I wanted to share with them, you know, you're not alone. Um, I went through this too. And it's one thing just to tell your kids that, and it's another to be able to hand a kid a book where they can read it for themselves and experience it for themselves. And um, it was very scary. It's the most vulnerable I've ever made myself in my life Mm. is writing these books, uh, really just revealing all of my... You know, revealing my imperfect self at my most vulnerable, and setting it out into the world to to do, to be read, to be judged, to be criticized. It's a it was a scary process for me, and I happily did it with my best friend Lewin Fam, who is the illustrator of the graphic novels, and having her companionship through the process was invaluable. Um, but. Yes, friendship was very scary for me. I just never really felt like I was one of those kids that was extroverted and desperately wanted a best friend, just somebody who was always there with me, who was uh, who knew me and liked me, and that um, she became, I uh, was invited to join like the popular group of kids when we were in their class in third grade. And from then on, I was always kind of half in, half out this popular group because I was bookish and awkward and probably just not cool enough to be in their friend group but my best friend was so i kind of was but you know you show up at school every day not knowing oh do i have friends today or do i not have friends today and i missed so much school with stomach aches and now i i know it's because of the stress of it
2: all
1: yeah boy i I tell people i, I would never want to go back to especially middle school yeah <laughs> yeah Yes. or maybe yes, not even third- elementary school yeah
0: yeah, my the third book in the in the trilogy is called Friends Forever, and it's about my eighth grade year at Bryant Intermediate. And, oh, man, so stressful, that age. And But I'm very excited. I'm partnering with a local charity, um, Teen Author Boot Camp uh, Book Drop, and my publisher, I'm going to be doing an assembly in a couple of weeks at Bryant. Um, Bryant is a Title I school with over 80% poverty rate and our publisher macmillan has generously donated books so that every kid at that school will receive a free copy of the book hmm.
1: what do you tell kids what do you tell your kids about about these problems you know you're desperately wanting a group and maybe you're not in a group and maybe you're not with the popular kids maybe you're even getting bullied what do you, what do you what do you tell uh, kids
0: yeah bullying was a situation i i definitely went through um it it's um First of all, my, my main job as a writer is to, is to tell the truth. Um, kids can tell when you're not telling the truth. You know, They want to feel an honest story. I've actually received feedback from adults that are worried that these books, Real Friends, Best Friends, and Friends Forever, um, that they are too sad and too hard for kids to read. But it's actually the, the opposite. It's hard for adults to read. It's hard for us to look back and remember how hard it was for the kids it's a relief they read these books and they get to the end and they start over and they read them again i've met multiple kids that have you know will read them 20 times in a week over and over again um they're they're going through it it's real for them and it's so such a relief to see it Um, mirrored back to them and it helps them make sense of what's happening to them and also helps them communicate better with the adults in their lives because they can point to parts and say, this is how I feel. This is what's happening. And it's good for adults to read them too because as hard as it is, it's harder for us to read these and go back there. It's good for us to remember. It helps us be more patient with these kids, what, what they're going through to remember, oh, yeah, it was hard. and It was confusing. And we have more compassion for them. I'm not great at advice. I'm better at writing stories um, that I hope the stories themselves um, are the comfort and the lighthouse for kids. But the one advice I do give is if we're all going to be a little better off, if we can have more compassion for ourselves, Mm -hmm. if we can talk to ourselves in our heads, like we would talk to a dear friend, someone we loved and turn off that self-criticism it doesn't actually help motivate us. It just it just hurts. And the more compassionate we are with ourselves, the more compassionate we are with other people.
1: Yeah, good advice You know, for any age, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I want to move to talking about uh, reading and gender. You've, you've written a lot about this and uh, have some uh, interesting thoughts about this. But uh, before I get into that proper, um, I want to talk about, uh, let's say, you have on your website called Stop Shushing the Funny Girls. Um and i <laughs> I just wanna I just want to read this uh, this past because it's hilariously funny uh, as an example uh, as an example, uh, so you say that uh, when uh, you and your husband, now husband Dean, were getting married, you made a, a wedding website, and uh, then you got together with an old group of friends. so this uh, involves your friend Mike. So Mike says, uh, I'll just read this. Mike says, Dean, I loved your wedding website. It's really funny. I kept laughing out loud. Then you say, well, you know, he built the site, but I wrote the content. And Mike says, you typed it? (laughs) I wrote it. You typed it up for him? I wrote it. You helped him write it? No, I came up with the words, put them together in sentences, and wrote them down. (laughs) I guess I've just always thought of Dean as the writer, says Mike. I just received my MFA in creative writing. Then he says, and he comes back later, I guess with couples, we're used to just thinking that one of them is the funny one. Then you say you and I were in an improv comedy troupe together. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, it's but, all uh,
0: true. Every word of that is true. Poor Mike. Still yeah. good friends with him, and he's never lived it down.
1: <laughs> so that, that, that is hilariously funny. Uh, but But I guess, you know, stereotypes, right? You have to deal with stereotypes. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So I've written about, about 20 of my books uh, would be considered comedies. And um, I attend a lot of conferences and book festivals where they would have panels that were called funny books. And I was never invited onto one of those panels. And those panels were always men, always 100% men. There is this um, stereotype that, that men are the comedians, that men are funny, and that women are not funny. And I, it. It, it's that—that's a prime example where if I would said something funny out loud, I might not have gotten a laugh because people aren't expecting me to be funny because I'm a woman. But I wrote it, and they thought it was a man. It was hilarious.
1: <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting and, and and sad in a way as well? Um, so tell me about you, you've you've written quite extensively on this and and um, the the reaction that you get. So, so tell me first of all the reaction you get when you go to school assemblies. Um, it, oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, I've it's done quite hundreds.
0: gendered. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've, I've done so many school assemblies in uh, over 40 states, and um, I, I've noticed throughout my career, it really began with Princess Academy, because uh, that was my most well-known book. I started being introduced as the author of Princess Academy, and, and it sounds so girly is the word I'm going to use. And um, oh, got, I would do signings, and only mothers and their daughters would show up. You know, just, I was a female-only audience, and I talked to friends of mine who are men like um, Brandon Sanderson and Brandon Mole, who we've all started our careers around the same time. When they do signings, their signings are full of men women, boys and girls, and I was exclusively a female-only audience. And I began to realize how we really assume that men's stories are universal and women's stories are only for girls and that uh, girls should and do read about everyone, but boys will only read about boys. That's the assumption. Boys won't read about girls. Girls will read about boys. But what I discovered is it's not true. I have so many boy readers, but they are embarrassed. That Our culture uh, teaches boys to be embarrassed to uh, read. Really what we're saying is boys should be ashamed to care about and empathize with girls. And that's just shockingly sad. Reading a novel is a great exercise in empathy, and if boys are only ever learning to empathize with other boys, they're not being set up to navigate this world very effectively. And what kind of men grow up do they grow up to be if they believe that it is not their job or their interest to understand and care about girls and women? Um and, and it's really the adults that are pushing this narrative. Of course there's peer shaming. But for example, one time I did an assembly and the um the librarian who introduced me said, Girls, I'm so excited, you are going to love Shannon Hale's books. Boys, I expect you to behave anyway. You know. Mm-hmm. And these sorts of this is what tells them what they're supposed to believe so many times i've been at book signings and a boy will come up to my table to pick up a book and a parent will pull the boy away and say no those are girl books you know they're being told right then and there and then additionally i've even had assemblies where i've showed up at the school and the school has pre-sorted the children and only the girls go to my assembly and the boys remain in class and as though I'm doing, you know, some kind of gender disassembly, I'm talking about writing and storytelling it has nothing to do with gender. And when I inquire, when a male writer came to this school, did only the boys attend? And no, in fact, the whole school attended for the male author. So this this has happened to me a lot over the last 15 years, and I've begun to speak up about it more and more, that um, a very simple thing um, that we find ourselves doing is, saying that a book about boys are for boys, and a book about girls are for girls. And all we need to do, really, to begin is just a preposition swap. If a book is about a girl, it's about a girl. We don't have to say who it's for. We don't have to prescribe who the book is for. Uh,
1: In fact, uh, I was reading, you have begun to push back uh, at assemblies. Kind of the the usual thing that would happen, apparently, um, you know, we're going to talk about... uh, you know, whatever G.I. Joe just to use it. Uh, it's not, not the case, but, and, and the, the boys cheer, right. But then uh, you can talk about princesses and uh, the boys boo so that they feel yeah. like they can boo what the, what they think the girls would like. Tell me what, to what you're doing now. Apparently you're pushing back a bit.
0: Yes, it really happened. I wrote a series called ever after high that was based on a Mattel toy series and when I would show these slideshows, I would first I would explain who Mattel is, the largest toy uh, maker in the world, and they make things like Matchbox cars, and you know, the boys would cheer, and the girls, you know, too, would cheer. There, there were no girls booing Matchbox cars or Justice League figures. And then I would say Barbie, and the boys would boo. And then, and I showed the image of Ever After High, the dolls and the books, and the boys would boo. And it's quite a shocking experience, actually. Um, just to feel that, to be a person up alone on a stage and and be booed like that for something that you've done. And it was also interesting that the teachers almost never reacted. They didn't shush the boys who were booing their guest speaker. It felt like this is just what boys do. This is how they are. And I did start pushing back. I used to just let it go. But I realized... Um, It wasn't just about me. I was thinking about how that's affecting all the girls sitting in the audience, that I'm saying that that's okay, that boys just ridicule and mock things that they like or that they perceive to be girly, again, using that word in quotes. Um, So I did start to address it more and more. And just said, that's not okay. That's not okay. I'm up here donating my time, and you're booing me. But additionally, you're booing things that other people care about. You don't have to like things. Um, you don't have to like everything, but you also don't have to mock what other people like. Uh, that's that's cruelty, and uh, encouraging kids to base who they are as a person on what they like, not what they don't like. Hmm. When we identify ourselves by what we love instead of what we hate, that's just a, a more a more healthy thing. But also, I just needed the girls to see that it was okay to stand up for myself, and and to say no, that's not okay.
1: Just one more thing before we take another break uh, a related topic um, you said uh, reading a Washington post uh, op ed you say the more we try to tell kids which books are for them, the more reluctant kids are to read um, you know kids know what they want right and you and especially if adults yeah. are forcing something on them so what um, so so what do you do what do you do in your household?
0: Uh, we have lots of lots of books. Um, We used to do lots of trips to the library. Now we just own them um, because I get too many library funds and I'm terrible. And although I just love books, I like to support writers. Um, But we have lots of books at lots of different age levels, lots of different genres, and I just have them everywhere. And I don't tell them they can't read any of them. I, I, I tell them if you're reading something and you're uncomfortable, you can always put the book down. You never have to finish a book that you're not liking or you're uncomfortable with. And if you read something that you're not sure what it means, I will read the book with you, and we can talk about it. But otherwise, I don't limit what they read. And they read widely, and I can never predict what they're going to like. And there are plenty of studies to also back this up. The more we tell kids, that book's not for you. In fact, I've got a picture book coming out next one called This Book is Not For You. And it's, it's exactly about that. Um, the more we tell them that, the less choice they have, the less likely they are to read. We also know that more the kids read for pleasure, the stronger their literacy skills are, and literacy skills help in every area of their schoolwork and every area of their life.
1: And as you said, uh, is reading reading fiction, especially, is a deeply empathetic experience, which which we can all use, right?
0: Absolutely. Famously, people um, have said that books are both mirrors. And windows, and every kid deserves to read books that see that they can see themselves reflected back. They also need to read books that are windows into other worlds that they don't understand, and that's how we gain empathy for people different from us.
1: Well, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Shannon Hale, uh, author of the Princess Academy series and uh, many others, including the latest Amethyst, which is on our UPR community book list. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, who reached our last segment now with Shannon Hale. She's based in Utah. She's New York Times bestselling author of the Princess Academy series, Rapunzel's Revenge, Austin Land, and many other books. The latest is Amethyst, which is on our UPR book list. Um, so Shannon Hale, uh, I want to talk about uh, Austin Land. Um, this is uh, your book, which was made into a movie starring Carrie Russell. Um, and so for people not familiar with this, uh, Jane Hayes is a young New Yorker I'm just reading the blurb real romantic problem. No man she meets can compare to her one true love, Mr. Darcy from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. When a wealthy relative bequeaths her a trip to an English resort for Austin fanatics, her fantasies of meeting the perfect Regency area gentleman suddenly become realer than she could ever have imagined. So folks go to this resort and they dress up in Regency costumes and I guess assume a character. Um Jane assumes character of Miss Erstwhile which is I, you know I love that I, I I laugh every time I I think of that. Um so um tell me about the where this came from the origin of this.
0: It came from my own obsession with Pride and Prejudice. I was not a fanatical kind of kid, like I never had like crushes on boy groups or actors or stuff like that. Um but Pride and Prejudice did a number on me, especially the BBC of six VHS um, miniseries starring Colin Firth. And so several of my friends also had this kind of weird obsession. And I started to think, what would it, you know, how how could it have been that great to live at that time? How could you, like, try it on for size to see if it really would feel that great? And I started coming up with a story where there was an immersive Um, experience with actors. Um, I kind of was thinking about, we used to play these how-to-host-a-murder-parties where everybody would take a character, you know, and play act for an evening. And that's where the root of it came. Um, So I wrote the book. It took me seven years, but eventually I um, worked with Jerusha Hess, who was the director, to co-write the screenplay, and we filmed it in England in 2011. It was a fantastic experience.
1: Oh, wonderful. So you had a hand in... Writing idea. do you think the the film came out well
0: oh yes so much fun yes um because i, I got to write, co-write the, the the a lot of the changes in the movie from the book were were mine were things that i wanted to change um i have no problem uh making those kinds of changes i it's a different medium you know film from book the book always exists and once we're moving into a film i'm like okay how can we take advantage of this visual medium? What would be fun? One of my favorite things was, um, in the in the book, they, they put on a little play. They do a little theatrical. And in the movie, oh, I just wanted to blow that up big. And it's the night we shot it uh, with a night shoot. Um, the first take, they ran through the—it's about a four-minute scene. They ran through the whole theatrical from Jennifer Coolidge climbing out of a clamshell till the end when all the characters die on stage <laughs> and they ran it through in one take with a wide shot called cut and then 120 people were in the middle of the woods 120 people all like collapsed to the ground in laughter like all of us were just holding it in so hard during the take to not laugh out loud and then it was just like a laughter bomb exploded and shook the trees. Yeah, we were weeping um, through every take. It was so it was so fun to make a comedy. <laughs> hmm.
1: You you in this letter to Janeites, by the way. Um, you uh, by the way, you write. Uh, you're just a lay fan. Um, love the movie adaptations. You haven't. You just read the novels, not the Juvenilia, the the, <laughs> the fragments or the biographies. Uh, what have you had any reaction from hardcore Janeites?
0: Yeah, I did. That's why I wrote that. <laughs> uh, when the book first came out, I, I, um, a lot of people, and I, you know, I respect this, a lot of people love Jane Austen so much, it's almost like a religion. It's almost like it's, you know, scripture text, and they don't want anybody messing with it. So I just wanted to be upfront with, you know, here's where I am, here's who I am, and this may not be for you. Please don't write me nasty emails and letters.
1: Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a joy.
1: And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.
2: Thank you for joining us for Session 5 of Utah Public Radio's 2022 Citizens Academy. This series of short broadcasts is being aired in an effort to provide a way to reduce political conflict and to restore a degree of civility in our political processes. We're proposing an idea that we believe can help. We call it political relationism. I'm Richard Ratliff. I start most of these programs with my personal declaration that I'm a political relationist. I think we all are, at least to some degree. Wherever I hear people talking about politics, they seem to agree that we need more civility in politics and government. I remember when I worked at the Austin American Statesman newspaper decades ago, I used to eat breakfast at Cisco's Bakery. Now, Cisco's was a modest place, well-known for its food. I especially like Cisco's Huevos Rancheros. But Cisco's was also known for something else. Cisco's had a meeting room, not large as I remember it, perhaps a dozen tables. I know memory can be faulty, especially long-term memory, but in my mind's eye, I see around the walls there were friendly photos of many of the legends of Texas politics, honored as statesmen among the people, Those images included famous Texas political rivals who also happened to be good friends. I was told that that room was where a lot of the real Texas politics took place, the negotiation, the compromises, the deals to get things done. And when it all got hammered out, those rivals would face the people together with a plan they both could support to do the difficult work of government for the welfare of the people who elected them. I suspect Utah has its own Cisco's Bakery, and there may be gathering places in all the states where today's more cooperative politics takes place outside the public eye. But if indeed this more cooperative politics is taking place, it seems to be a well-kept secret. We, the public, see mostly threatening red lines in the sand. Yes, there are notable exceptions, but the general tenor of today's politics is unfriendly, demeaning, and disheartening to those of us who depend upon the outcome. I'm not proposing a return to the day of secret, nefarious, dealing behind closed doors to smoke-filled rooms. I am suggesting the need for cooperative relationships among able, well-intended people who, for good reason, may have a diversity of insight and ideas. Where are today's leaders, today's statesmen? We need them. We need those who are intelligent and fair as a judge, with impeccable integrity, who are temperate as a spring morning, courageous as a Navy SEAL, prudent as a prophet, who love with compassion, whose list of friends extends equally across the aisles that divide, who, regardless of physical stature, appear as giants wherever they stand, their voices ringing with truth and wisdom. Those reluctant of personal praise— but generous in extending it, those who inspire the rest of us to be our best selves. I use the word statesman because I know no other word bearing the strength, reverence, and stature born in that word, statesman. I do not intend it to be gender-specific. It fits equally to Deborah, Golda, Eleanor, Margaret, as it does to Gautama, George, Winston, or Nelson. Whoever they may be in today's world, we need them now. We need them in the United States of America. I believe they are among us now. I don't know where they are. Our present political climate may not tolerate such things, but I choose not to believe it. They are here. I'm sure of it. Enter those whom we might call guardian citizen. The stakeholders of this precious nation acting together for the general welfare of us all, together, as different as we are and might be. The fifth characteristic of relationism is this. We citizens must find those among us who exhibit the best relationship skills and who possess the most robust relationship portfolios, who may rise as the statesmen of our time. We must convert the naysayers, the criticizers, the negators, the insiders who divide us. We need statesmen. We must find them, elect them, and support them in the very difficult job of building and protecting a healthy, sustainable society. That's our job, for the good of us all. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thank you for listening. Till next time.